Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sheila Shoiga, and this is Ready To Be Real Conversations, the podcast series where I chat to people of all walks of life. Some names you'll recognise, others you might not, but my hope is that these conversations will at times inspire, challenge, educate, comfort, or simply entertain you. This week, I speak to the brilliant Daniel Matte. And it's been such great scaffolding for us to get to know each other and like each other better and understand each other better. We've never really understood each other that well. We're very different people in some ways, but we've always liked each other a lot ever since I was a kid. And that love is a strong thing. But in terms of being able to get along, collaborating has been useful scaffolding for us to get to understand each other, to set different boundaries, to learn new skills as we get older. And at a certain point, job well done. The book's going to be out there. The video is going to be out there. And we can just go back to, I pray, having the appropriate kind of relationship for a near 50-year-old man to have with his 80-year-old father and all of the things that that entails. This conversation with Daniel has really helped me and I think you'll feel the same when you listen to it. In the first half, he talks about his work, his relationship with his father, Dr. Gabor Mate, and how different they are as people. And then later on, we discuss Palestine and what he has to say is enlightening. He talks Zionism, privilege and also what he learned about himself during his time in a Mexican jail. And I started by asking him to tell us a little bit about himself. I'm from Vancouver, Canada, originally. Uh, I moved to Brooklyn, New York in my mid-adulthood and have spent the better part of it here. And I use the better part of it both quantitatively and qualitatively. I love it here. Um, If I could design my life completely, I would spend approximately a third of the year here, a third of the year in Victoria, BC, which is on the west coast of Canada near where I'm from, and maybe a third traveling or, or less. Um, I write musical theater. That's why I moved here. 
did the NYU program um, at the Tisch School of the Arts for musical theater writing, and I have a master of completely impractical fine arts in that. Um, but writing musicals is really the artistic through line of my grown-up years. So yeah, for my taste, for my sense of mission satisfaction, um, haven't brought that part of my life to full fruition yet, but I've had a lot of amazing experiences. I've worked with some of Broadway's best. Um, I had a musical produced in Denmark in Danish in 2017. I had a musical that was going to world premiere on the very eve of COVID. March 12th, 2020 was the world premiere date that never happened. Um, okay. So I've got a number of shows that are in the pipeline and then probably a few more in me that need to be written. While that's all happening at its own glacial pace, um, I write other things. So I co-wrote a book with my father, who many of your listeners will know, Gabor Mate. The book was called The Myth of Normal. And it's gone on to be something of a hit. It's been translated into over 30 languages. I think we just got our French contract signed. The French were the last to come around. They're, you know, they kind of had their noses up for a while, but eventually they took an interest. So, and I've put myself in the running to narrate the French version of the audiobook. I'm hoping they'll hire me. I do speak French. I've narrated all my dad's audiobooks, several fiction books, novels, business coaching books. Um, yeah, uh, it's something I enjoy. It's, it's a perennial thing for me. It's not something I do all the time, but hmm. whenever I can get in the studio uh, and, and listen to the sound of my own voice, reading something hopefully good, <laughs> I enjoy it. And um, now the audiobook has actually sold very, very well. At one point, we were number two on the New York Times bestseller list for audiobooks. Um, so that's become a you know an important part of my life, um, working with him. And we have a, a, another book that we're starting to work on now based on a workshop that we've been uh, leading together for the last seven, eight years called Hello Again, a fresh start for parents and their adult children, or not their adult children, just parents and adult children. Um, mm. And um, we are working on that. And obviously, that's a much more personal project for me. The myth of normal was me hopping aboard my dad's professional train and helping him get this book that needed to get written, written, and helping it be more accessible than it would have been. and um, more engaging and contemporary sounding and all the things that I was able to bring to it, but it was his expertise. Hello again is about parents and adult children. And so I'm exactly 50% of that dynamic. And, yeah. um, so it's very much about us, but it's not just about us because most parents and adult kids aren't like us, but of course, no two, no two people, no two parent child pairs are alike. So we're trying to find out what's universal, both through our own experience, but also through all the people we've worked with. So that's in the works now, and that's quite a, um, a task, and um, it's an exciting challenge. Um, I think it's a topic that many people are dealing with, but no one's really dealing with because it's the kind of topic that you can just kind of let slide. It's fine. It is what it is. Now that you're out of childhood, your parents are your parents. They're not going to change. You just kind of survive the relationship or as best you can, if you choose to be in it at all. And it's an optional one once you're grownups. So we're asking the radical question, what, it, what would it be like to choose to be in it or to choose not to be in it, but either way to be thoughtful about the spirit in which you're making that choice. It's not the tricky thing though, for people, just while we're on this, that when you become an adult, I suppose there is, as you said, it's about a choice that people make, that, but perhaps in a dynamic of a relationship that maybe has 
broken down or is not working the way one person or both people want that if one person wants to do the work and is willing to go there, but the other person isn't, you kind of, you can't force them into it either. Well, you would think it would, but if it does, then we're, if I may curse on your program, fecked because, um, (laughs) because you can't guarantee that, can you? And even if all three or all two say they're willing, well, what if, I say I'm willing and you say you're willing, but I don't like your willingness. I say, no, in fact, you're not pulling your weight. The minute we take that premise, we're already further entrenched in the very dynamic that we're probably trying to extricate ourselves from. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Okay. What I'm doing now is an example of this other work I do on my own, having nothing to do with my dad, which I call mental chiropractic, which I'll tell you about in a second. But as far as this relationship goes, one of the mantras of our workshop is it takes two to tango. It takes one not to. So the Mm. dynamic is a dynamic. And this illusion that it's a two-way street, well, maybe in the abstract it is, but your experience of the relationship is entirely your experience of the relationship. And 80%, I estimate, maybe it's 70, but some large majority of what determines your experience of the relationship has nothing to do with the relationship. It has to do with your, your relationship to the relationship. And that is something the other person can't help you with. But mm. that's good news. Because that's something you can do work on whether they're alive or dead, in your life or not in your life, sane or otherwise, uh, cogent and, and, or, or senile. You know, there's actually no... For the first leg of the work, which is to work on what is my relationship to this relationship? What is my relationship to our past together? I mean, we have to reckon with how tricky and fraught a relationship it is and totally, completely unique in the realm of human relationships. Because I said the relationship is a choice. How did it start? It started as the least choiceful relationship imaginable. One person, I guess, chose to bring the other one into the world, sort of but they didn't get to choose, select out of a manual who that person would be. And as for the Mm. person who was brought into the world, they weren't even around to consent to being created. So there was absolutely no choice in the matter. And then there were all kinds of other choiceless things like the fate of history and generational trauma and class and race and location and era and all this kind of stuff. And then the individual personalities of the parents and how that lines up or doesn't line up with the temperament of the child. So in other words, how good a fit it was, not just between the two personalities, but with the entire context for the parenting, which is what the myth of normal makes clear, is that parenting happens Mm. in a context. So it's not personal. It's not like one person failed, but maybe something failed to happen. As in, I came into the world and my little system expected a calm, secure place to orient myself slowly and gradually and securely until I understand what this life thing is. But I didn't get that. I got something very, very different. And then I had to adjust to it. And who I became for myself, my whole personality, and my life trajectory has been a consequence in large part of that lack of fit. So now, here I am in adulthood, and I'm choosing to have a relationship with the very people who were the like frontline avatars for the the world that I was supposed to get used to. Hmm. Again, it's not, it doesn't mean they were bad parents. It doesn't mean anything wrong happened, but it does mean that it's a special kind of choice that if I'm going to be in relationship with these people, 
I have my own backlog of views, perceptions, biases, unexpressed hurts, um, uh, all kinds of stories that I might have about them. And those stories were hatched in the crucible of being an infant and a toddler. And part of me is mm -hmm. still there. So there's all kinds of things I can be doing over here. And for the parents, I'm not one, but it's the same thing. They have their point of views about the child. They have their dashed expectations and regrets and guilt and resentments and all kinds of stuff. So in our workshop, just to finish off this part of my answer to your question, and I'll, I'll hand it back to you. When people arrive for our workshop, the first thing we do is we separate them. If they come together, and sometimes they don't, sometimes people just come by themselves. But if a parent and an adult child come together, there's a sign up on the PowerPoint slide on the very first day saying, don't sit together. You're not qualified yet to work on your relationship. You each have to work on your own relationship mm -hmm. to the relationship. And they may, that may sound dire, but actually it's the best news. Mm, it's amazing work that you guys are doing. And I know a lot of people listening are very familiar with, with your father's work with you. Um, but for those who perhaps are not, it would be, if you don't mind, maybe giving us a sense, because I know you speak about it in terms of, and your father has been very open about speaking about, you know, the early years of parenthood and navigating that. But mm -hmm. could you bring us back perhaps to a time or a memory that you might have if it's okay to do so, where it was difficult. Yeah, it is a particularity of working with a father who, um, part of whose reputation, quite justifiably, is for being candid and self-searching uh, and being able to speak vulnerably and very fallibly about the difficulties of being a young parent or a parent at any age including some of the things he wishes he'd done differently. But part of the drawback of that is I'm flipping through my Instagram and the algorithm is sending me clips from his podcasts and I'm just flipping through, you know, funny pig videos or whatever. And suddenly there's a video of my father on like Dr. Chatterjee's podcast in the UK talking about the time he hit his three-year-old son across the face in front of the family for not singing him happy birthday. And that's me. Mm. And it's quite jarring to have come across, like on my phone, you know, you have to imagine like it's a particular position to be in. So I've become a little bit protective of my own traumatic memories. Um, but the overall experience of growing up in that home was one of confusion and disorientation. And that was, as we say in the myth of normal, trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to you. So even to get into the details of this happened or that happened, risks getting lost in the weeds of historical happenings and events and not touching into what it actually did to me and the little conclusions that my little system came to about what the world is, what love is, and what I have to do to get through this world and get some semblance of the love that I needed love, acceptance, support, stability, security, all those basic needs. And it was just a very, very emotionally and even cognitively insecure environment because my parents were both mercurial people who I would say without diagnosing them with anything whatsoever were carrying deeply narcissistic wounds from their own early childhoods and completely understandably, if you know anything about my dad's childhood and 
my mom's, which she's less public about, but I'm not talking out of school when I say that. Hmm. Just some deep, deep core wounds, existential wounds, really, that they had not resolved by the time I was a newborn, which is to say when my mom was 27 and my dad was 30 or whatever, which who has resolved those things by those ages, if we ever do. And they were in a very intense and I would say codependent relationship, if we're going to use diagnostic terms. But if I had to use non-jargony terms, I'd say it was a relationship where, where they were completely fused with each other. Their entire focus all the time was on the dynamic between them. And of course, they loved me, and I was a very attention-getting kid. But when push came to shove, when the chips were down, the thing that was going to magnetize their attention was either their harmony or their disharmony. And it dominated the house unilaterally. So I felt like I grew up with three parents, my mom, my dad, and their relationship. And by far, their relationship was the thing that dominated. And every child needs to know that, at least for the purposes of their own development, that they are the center of their parents' world, at least for a certain period of time. You know, we, mm -hmm. that's the narcissistic phase. We need that. And then we learn that, in fact, we're not the center of the world. But I grew up with the experience that the attention I got the love I got, the approval I got, and the calm energy around me that I desperately needed was very contingent and very fleeting. And I had to work for it. I had to work to keep it around. So my little brain went into overdrive and I became extremely sophisticated. Now, I was probably born with some verbal gifts. I don't think I became a lyricist by accident. I don't think I have the gift of gab that I have through sheer effort. I think there's a talent there sensitivity, mm -hmm. communication, love of, I mean, language I love, you know, same thing with music. I might've been born with perfect pitch, but it didn't hurt and it didn't help. But in terms of developing my ear, the fact that I would stay up late at night after I had gone to bed and I could hear my parents three rooms away and I could just hear the cadences of their voices. And I'd be trying to decipher what they were saying and trying to figure out if they were talking about me and if they were angry about me or if they were arguing about me. And I would be listening, tuning in, and getting better and better at it. That has to have something to do with it. So I grew up as this gifted kid whose gifts were commandeered in some ways, and I could say hijacked by life, by the need to survive, not just to express myself, but to orient myself in a world that, in a perfect world, would have helped me orient just by being a calm, stable environment. So it was a very verbal home. It was a lot of fun, a lot of playfulness. My dad and I loved wordplay when I was very young. He's often said, you know, he was waiting for his kids to learn how to speak so he knew how to play with them, which is a sad commentary on his ability to be present in his body. You know, just how do you know how to play with a baby? You don't learn it. It's a, it's a kinesthetic thing, but he was cut off from that part of himself. So mm -hmm. I grew up with that, and I had the experience of that lack. So all of that stuff, it was a complicated place with two wonderful, conscientious, obviously politically quite enlightened, I think, uh, people. My mom's an artist, so self-expression was always a high value. My, my music was always encouraged. My drawing was always encouraged. My reading, my imagination was always encouraged. And with, with all of those things, which are things I would want to provide for a child where I'd have one, and I still hope to. 
there were these complicating or polluting factors that made the love and the attention difficult to digest and difficult to swallow. And even when I got it, I distrusted it. And that led to all kinds of issues with relationship and other kinds of things. Thank you for sharing that. To come to that place of of connection in adulthood that you have and now being able to help so many people is is such important, brilliant, brilliant work. And thank you for all that you're doing. Um, as you said, thank look, you. I, I will say I'll caution you and anybody else against idealizing my dad and I's relationship, because just like part of his teaching about addiction is to speak about how he's been an addict in his life and he never mm. claims to be above it. Part of our teaching about the challenges of parent-child relationship is to exemplify those changes live on stage. Now, it happens that we did a workshop in California last month, which was filmed and will be released as an online course sometime. I don't exactly know when, but now it's going to be a visual document and we also have the book. I'm no longer convinced that we need to be doing these workshops anymore. For me, it's a lot of work because I have to get up on Mm. stage and and the burden falls unequally on us, actually, as the son, especially as the son of a famous person. Um, but also just as a 48-year-old sitting next to an 80-year-old. There's just a different relationship to working through the challenges. I have a different capacity. The stakes are different for me. And what will happen is our stuff comes up on stage. And yeah, it's an incredible space. People do brilliant transformative work. We do great work with people. Him and I, we trade off. He does his compassionate inquiry method. I do my mental chiropractic method. At our best, they're very complementary. But you know what else happens? All of our other dynamics come up, including competition, Okay, including him trying to manage me and me trying to rebel against him, same as it ever was, ever since I, w- I could speak. Mm-hmm. So that comes up. So we're in the present, but we're also being visited by the ghosts of parent-child relationship past. And then it's on us, it's incumbent upon us and often disproportionately on me, I would say, to make it into a teachable moment (laughs) because Mm. we're doing it in public. It's hard enough to do it in private. So I don't really relish the notion of doing that too much longer, also because my dad just turned 80 and I just want to have a dad. You know, like the the collaboration has been brilliant and I take your acknowledgement and and you're welcome and I'm, I'm great. It's been great. And it's been such great scaffolding for us to get to know each other and like each other better and understand each other better. We've never really understood each other that well. We're very different people in some ways, but we've always liked each other a lot ever since I was a kid. And that love is a strong thing. But in terms of being able to get along, collaborating has been useful scaffolding for us to get to understand each other, to set different boundaries, to learn new skills as we get older. And at a certain point, job well done. The book's going to be out there. The video is going to be out there. And we can just go back to, I pray, having the appropriate kind of relationship for a near 50-year-old man to have with his 80-year-old father and all of the things that that entails. It might be nice to talk about the mental chiropractic work that you do as well, because you brought it in there mm-hmm. with your, um, you said that you kind of incorporate it into the workshops. So this is something that you yeah. do as well. Yeah. The mental chiropractor thing is something I've developed. I never planned it. But it was almost a necessity because I always have wanted to work with people. I even took a psychology degree in undergraduate 
my undergraduate studies at McGill. But it was a default choice. I just wanted to learn about people. I wanted to learn about myself. I wasn't trying to follow in my father's footsteps. At that point, he wasn't even thought of as a therapist. He was still just a, and is a GP, uh, you know, a medical doctor, a general practitioner, um, retired now. He started asking his patients questions about their lives. And in so doing, he developed a therapeutic method that is now taught all over the world. But I never wanted to do that. I'm not a therapist. I actually don't have the patience to be a therapist. I'm a much more aggressive, interruptive uh, interlocutor than a therapist is. Someone calls it, someone told me, don't worry, you're not interrupting. It's collaborative overlap. And I like that. That's what I do. I want to have a conversation. It's like back and forth, bam, 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 because I have a certain intentionality about me. I want to get somewhere in a conversation. I never want to have to say to somebody, okay, well, I think we made some good progress this week. I'll see you next week. And just like, it just ends. I can't stand that. Like, that's just not me. So there's a kind of, what are we looking for in this conversation? What's the intention? I'm always driving towards something, which can turn into a kind of very uh, intellectual, cerebral, masculine, goal-oriented kind of thing. But it can also be a real gift if it's channeled right. So mental chiropractic was a term someone gave to me to actually explain to me why and how I'm not like my father, which explains partly why I really liked the term. I was Mm. working with a group in an environment where people knew about my dad's work. It was like a psychedelic space, actually, back when I used to be involved with that. And that was back when I really didn't have as much of a sense of myself separate from him. But I was still trying to do it my way. You know? It's like, if I'm mm-hmm. not going to find my path, at least I'm going to like do your path my way, which is like the story of my educational life, um, in, in formal education anyway. So here I was, and this person said to me, you know, you really don't work with people like your father does. I said, you're damn right. I'm glad to hear it. He says, yeah, you don't do his thing. I said, but what is it that I do? What is my thing? He said, you're a mental chiropractor. I said, you know what? Yes, I am. I liked that very much because it immediately conveyed so many aspects of what what appeals to me about a kind of conversation with a person if they're willing to like you don't go up to someone on the street and chiropract them non consensually that would be Hmm. assault. (laughs) So chiropractic already implies that there's some buy-in, there's a request, maybe there's even a demand. It also implies that there's a there's an acute and discreet complaint that the person is bringing, which cuts through this vague, I'm not, I'm not going to denigrate it. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's my father's whole world. And I wrote with a book with him about it. And obviously I carry a lot of it in myself. And it's a very important thing. Trauma. Now trauma, we all have to deal with our own trauma, the injuries we're carrying. Trauma is not my jam. It's not it's a fact of my life and it's a fact of the world. But in terms of working with people, I'm less interested in the trauma, which is such a big topic that it takes a long time and a lot of patience and a lot of gentleness that are not really my fortes to get into. And then what can you do with trauma? You can heal it over time. That's a little soft focus for me, for my taste. What I'm interested in is where are you stuck? Now, of course, wherever you're stuck is going to be an expression of your trauma. Like if you had an injury as a child to your back, 
That was the trauma. And now you're having acute shoulder pain. That's the stuckness. You go to the chiropractor for the stuckness, not for the trauma. And then you do long-term physiotherapy maybe to work on the underlying causes. I'm interested in having the small victory on the surface right now with whatever you're stuck with. And we can do that in one conversation, which is what my mental chiropractic approach is meant to do. So I take walks with people. I literally walk with them. My website is walkwithdaniel.com. And I got that also from someone else's suggestion. I was walking with a friend in Western Canada, helping him with a kind of mental chiropractic adjustment, which is exactly what it sounds like. Someone's mind is stuck in a certain position, a certain, uh, certain framework, a frame of mind, which is giving them a certain stuck experience of a situation in their life, a very particular experience, a particular situation. And I was helping him loosen it up and adjust it and get it aligned the way a chiropractor would do with a spine. And at a certain point, my friend said, you know, Daniel, you're really good at walking with people. I said, you know what? That's a damn good gimmick. And four weeks later, my website was born. So I've been doing that ever since. I just did one this morning in the snow here in Brooklyn. This person was in Dubai, walking in very different climate. And I love it. I get to help people. I get to literally walk with people, Hmm. either in person or on the phone. I get to get outside. And together, collaboratively, we get them unstuck. It's not problem solving, it's problem dissolving. It's saying, okay, what is this stuckness really about? Maybe we can't heal the lifelong trauma, the whole issue. Of course we can't, it's too big. But what if this thing you've been stuck on for days, weeks, months, years, you could have a different experience of it, a different view of it, completely different experience by the end of this conversation? What would that then say to the rest of your quote-unquote trauma? Well, it might say to it, your days are numbered. It might say to it, it ain't necessarily so. Nothing's set in stone. Because all of it is just stuckness inherited from the past that gets embedded into our normal, becomes the wallpaper of our life that we cease to be able to even notice. But if we can bring the background into the foreground and say, okay, this is stuck. I'm willing to get unstuck. And I'm willing to consider that it's my point of view about it that's keeping me stuck, not the situation itself that's keeping me stuck. Then in a very, you know, relatively very brief period of time with a powerfully intentional conversation where I get to interrupt as much as I want, because <laughs> that's my job. It's an intervention, literally, at their request. We can actually leave that person with a crystallized view of the exact same situation without the situation having changed one iota in the span of that walk. But they come at it afterwards from a different perspective. And people report to me that it's, it's quite effective. And you're, you're bringing that work that you do into your social media platform now through Instagram in, in terms of what you've mm -hmm. been putting out over the past few months in particular. You've been doing Instagram lives, you've been out walking, you've been out talking, I suppose, giving people who are tuning in perhaps a bit of perspective, a different viewpoint, maybe a bit of comfort, um, a bit of education, all of the above. So um, let's talk about that now, because it, it feels like as somebody who is following, following you online, that it's vocational for you at the moment. Would that be too strong to say? Define vocational. 
like a calling. I think of that as avocational, you know, an avocation versus a vocation. The vocation okay. is your, but maybe maybe the two things are amount to the same thing. I always thought of my vocation as writing musicals, but my my but calling is a word that I absolutely resonate with. And yes, but the calling is something bigger, actually, because the writing the musicals and the doing the Instagram lives are expressions of the same calling. Hmm. It's not that my calling is to be a if if my calling was to be a composer like a self-sustaining artist, my life would be a total failure because I can't make a living at that right now. They say you can make a killing on Broadway, but you can't make a living and I'm not even on Broadway. If my calling was to write books with my father, that would be pretty depressing to me, even though it's a wonderful opportunity and he's a wonderful father and they're wonderful books, but that's not, if that was the extent of my calling, but the thing is, that's not my calling. My calling is people being crystalline or crystallized, actually. You used the word earlier, and it jumped out at me, because that's what turns me on in life. That's what I want. That's what I want to create more of, see more of, show up for, hold space for, all of that good stuff. So in every single thing I do, I'm expressing that calling. And it just turned out that when October 7th happened, I had this impulse in me. I knew on some level, that I was built for this. Now, I didn't have the platform that I have now. I had a good number of followers, but they had all come to me via my dad's work, basically, or my musical theater work, or I don't know, maybe they saw some funny meme I posted. But it was a fraction of what's there now. So I wasn't banking on, this is what the world is waiting to hear. I didn't know who was going to tune in. But it was October 8th, and I was looking at the media coverage of what was happening, and I was seeing what Israel was gearing up for, and I was remembering my days as a Zionist summer camp uh, summer camp goer, first of all, and then a counselor, and then a program director, and realizing how alive this issue is for me, and how much I have to say about it, and how little I have said about it, relatively speaking, and how urgent the moment was. And I also sensed how confused people were, and were going to be by what had happened, because it was such a disorienting um, event for so many people, or it highlighted how disoriented they already were. And like I said about my early childhood, disorientation is what I've been working my way out of my entire life, so I'm pretty good at getting oriented, actually. And I had this sense that if I took out my phone, logged into Instagram, clicked live, and took a walk, I might say some things that I needed to hear, and maybe mm. some other people would too. And that was the entire extent of my strategic planning. And it turned out that I was, in some ways, built to extend or expand my calling to this moment. And that there was a new expression for my calling to be found, which is to say, to marshal everything I have, which includes my identity. And I'm not a big identity guy, but it just happens to be the case that I'm Jewish. Son of a Holocaust survivor, that's another identity badge. Former Zionist, that's another identity badge. Male, white, straight, I mean, list them off, right? All of the advantages and privileges that I have in this particular world that we're living in. They don't mean anything in and of themselves, but contextually, they have significance. I have that. I've got the gift of gab. I like walking. I've got some perspective. 
My voice is going to have a certain credibility if I'm speaking up for Palestine because people don't want to hear Palestinians speak up for Palestine for all kinds of horrible, illegitimate reasons. That everything I have in terms of identity, everything I have in terms of skill set, the ability to put thoughts together cogently, to be funny. You know, my sense of humor has been a big part of what people seem to respond to, Hmm. which is not about making light of a situation, but it's about using lightness as a way of grasping things that are too heavy to grasp otherwise. And also using lightness and comedy and satire, which is one of the great traditions of at least Ashkenazi European Jewish lineage in, especially in North America, but even before Yiddish culture was very satirical. And the satirical tradition in, in stand-up comedy, you know, Lenny Bruce in America, using our outsider status to be able to cut through the bullshit hmm. and, and call out hypocrisy and identify with other outsiders and other marginalized people, other marginalized groups, and, and mock the powerful and cut them down at least closer to size. And my energy and also my, the fact that I'm in a financially stable moment in my life where I can afford to be spending hours a day doing this. I have all of these advantages and I didn't feel a sense of like, oh, onerous, oh, it's my obligation and how am I going to use my privilege? No, I just knew what to do and it was a pleasure mm. to do it. And then when people responded, I was kind of like, wow, that was easy. And since then, I've been growing more into that and doing more and more of it. And also now, remembering that I do have a rest of my life that I need to be tending to if I'm going to do this with integrity. Yeah. Because my calling yeah. is not to be a social media influencer, God forbid. Mm. That would be a very limited, narrow, constrained uh, reduction of myself. You see the guitars on the wall behind me. They are... Mm. They are nodding, you know, glaringly at me at the very thought that I would think that like what I'm supposed to do in this life is to make funny videos and have people like it a lot and like feel important. That all is cool. I'm not kicking it out of bed. And it's brought a lot of joy and connection. I've met all kinds of incredible people. It's brought me into a whole new world, including into contact with real live Palestinians who for me prior to this, were in some ways only a sort of sympathetic abstraction. Mm. So I welcome all of it, and I lament the circumstances that brought it about, but we don't get to pick our moments. But it's not the sum total of me either, and if I get attached to it like a new persona, like a new role, well, then I'm trapped in yeah. that, and I won't be ready for the next moment. So I try to keep it about the calling, not about the particular vocational avenues for that calling, because those will come and go. Mm-hmm. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I've heard you describe yourself as being culturally Jewish more so than religiously so. How do you feel about your... I mean, for want of a better word, your Jewishness at right now with all that's happening? It's a very interesting question. And my answer to it is getting less and less self-assured by the day. I'm not sure how I feel about my Jewishness. I feel a number of different ways. So the first rush of feelings that I had in the last few months were, I've never been more proud to be Jewish. In the sense that Whatever it is that I connect to about Judaism or Jewishness, which are two different things, Judaism is a religion that I don't practice. Jewishness Mm. is informed by it, but that's sort of a cultural identity. Well, what I've always connected to about it, since it wasn't the religion per se, and it wasn't the history exactly, and it wasn't the scriptures, was the intellectual, artistic, and social justice lineage of European Jews, which is who I'm from. Yeah. You know, important to realize that there's many, many, many kinds of Jews in the world. And what people think of as Jewishness, especially in the West, is an Ashkenazi version of Judaism, which is to say the Jews of, you know, Eastern Europe. Spain has has its own tradition, the Sephardic Jewish tradition, of which I'm not a part, at least not that I know of, although looking at my features, it's, it's not implausible. But the intellectual, scientific, philosophical tradition, the tradition that gave us Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen, mm. um, and so many great American filmmakers who made humanistic, complex, sly commentaries on the human condition, sympathetic to the outsider, sympathetic to the suffering. The musical theater tradition in America was created 
in large part by Jewish people, Stephen Sondheim, Yip Harburg, who wrote Over the Rainbow, you know, um, Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach, who wrote Fiddler on the Roof, which was explicitly a Jewish musical, which was radical for the time. Sure. Um, but when I was growing up, I thought the Fiddler on the Roof soundtrack was a was an authentic document of European Jewish historical culture. I didn't realize it was a Broadway musical for made for made for Goyim, you know? Um, but it's a, you know, all of that, that whole tradition and the com and the comedic tradition as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, the ways that it's influenced America. I mean, really you could look at American culture as basically a mishmash, which is a Yiddish word of, uh, you know, Eastern European Jewish culture, African American culture, and then like Appalachian and Southern cult, you know, white cultures and Native American cultures. And, you know, so we're a big part of it. And I've always felt very connected to that part. And that part very much involves speaking out when you see something wrong. So Jews were huge in the civil rights movement. I'm not, I don't want to overstate our influence, but we were disproportionately reflected in the people who went down on the freedom marches and the, the bus rides and all that kind of stuff, put their bodies on the line. Labor rights, you know, almost the entire lineup of the people who, who made the Bolshevik revolution happen were Jewish. Lenin wasn't Jewish, but, you know, Trotsky and all the rest were. I'm not making a case for communism here. I'm just saying that, hmm. you know, worldwide, the labor movement has always been a very Jewish phenomenon. We've been, we've had a real class awareness and trying to make the world a better place and speak. And Einstein was Jewish and all this stuff. So that's what I've always felt the most connected to. That's what my family's Jewish practices connected me to, given who my father was, who my uncles were, really outspoken advocates for various causes in our communities. And the Passover Seder for us was always about this happened to us. It should never happen to anyone else. Uh, it was always about how can we make this a better world, whether that's environmentally or politically or whatever. So, October, November into December, here I am walking and talking literally in that great lineage and tradition, and I'm feeling very proud to be Jewish. And I'm surrounded suddenly by all these Jews who are coming to life with it, Jewish Voice for Peace and independent Jewish voices mm. in Canada, and if not now, and not in our name, and shutting down Grand Central Station all over the place. Finally, our voices as Jews who considered Zionism, if not in theory, then certainly in practice, an abomination and a desecration of what Jewishness is really about. All of a sudden, we have a voice, and we're being seen and heard. We're on the news. So I felt very proud to be Jewish, and I was meeting all kinds of fellow Jews that I didn't know existed, feeling great to be a part of it. That's still there with me. At the same time, I'm getting more and more aware, in parallel with that, I would say, not in opposition to it, but in parallel, that there's a void at the center of my Jewishness. And I don't know what happened historically. Certainly, the destruction of European Jewry by the Nazis is a huge piece, because the Yiddish culture, the Yiddish language got almost entirely obliterated, and now, thank God, people are resurrecting it. But I, I didn't grow up with it. I don't speak Yiddish. I eat bagels. It's different. <laughs> you know? I have a few artifacts from it. Mm -hmm. And I went to an event last night 
here in Brooklyn, a Palestinian cultural event. And I was in the presence, really, of an entire room of people who never lost their connection to their culture, even though their land got taken by force and their people have been brutalized and are being genocided right now. The palpable connection to people, culture, land, language, music, food, all of it is the sign of a healthy working culture. And on the other side of the coin in the Jewish world, there are the Mizrahi Jews or the Sephardic Jews or the Eastern Jews or the Oriental Jews, whatever you want to call them. And they have their own history of trauma, of being uprooted from their world where they used to live in harmony with Arabs, because they are Arabs, Arab Jews. I met a woman at this event last night, a Syrian woman, Muslim, I think, who told me how much her mother used to weep for the loss of their Jewish neighbors when all the Jews left mm -hmm. Syria after the creation of the State of Israel. Zionism didn't just mess things up in Palestine. It upset a whole apple cart of coexistence the entire region over. And I'm not saying the Arab states were blameless, but whatever the causes were, there was a huge rupture between the Jews of the Middle East, the so-called Middle East, and their surroundings and their friendships and connections and enmeshments in Muslim culture. So they have a void that they're trying to heal. And as for me, you know, just being at that event last night, it's like, yeah, there's something missing because my connection to Judaism is a kind of proud nostalgia, not a living, breathing culture that I really feel connected to. And there's been all kinds of attempts in North America and elsewhere to revive Judaism, renew Judaism, all this kind of stuff. None of them have ever really called to me. So I'm actively in the inquiry can I really make it through this life without finding my way, or at least asking the question, at least being on the search for a kind of active, even daily Jewishness that feeds me in a way that intellect can't, music can't. Hmm. And I don't know if that means that I'm going to become a religious Jew. I, I, I don't feel particularly called to that. But certainly, Every culture has its rituals. But one thing is very true, and this may be the irreconcilable void that I just have to reckon with rather than try to wriggle out of, is that the void where land should be mm -hmm. for me is huge. The closest thing I have to a homeland is Western Canada. And I'm willing to claim it as my homeland because I was born there, but my father wasn't. And my mother was, but her parents weren't. So it's barely my homeland. I, do, I was just there. And when I'm there, something in me does come to a state of rest and a state of nourishment. And that's wonderful, you know. But even there, my homelandness there is borrowed from another people's who was very, very recently taken from them by force, and they're still suffering the consequences of that. In fact, the shirt I'm wearing is a, in solidarity with them. So it's like, who am I? And, and one of my favorite teachers is a Canadian fellow named Stephen Jenkinson, who has a school he calls Orphan Wisdom. And there's a sense in which I think 
It's not enough for me to just proudly claim I'm an anti-Zionist Jew. Okay, so I'm anti-Zionist. Well, what am I pro? Yeah. Am I pro-Palestine? Well, that's fine. That goes a certain distance, but that's about someone else. I will not claim Israel as my homeland. I never will. It's not. And even if it was freed tomorrow and renamed Palestine, it still wouldn't be my homeland. So what does it mean to be a responsible orphan in the world and to carry our orphanhood honestly and to connect with the heartbreak of that and then to try to find a, a home base, you know, where we are? That just might be a, a lifelong thing for me. So your question about my, how do I feel about my Jewishness brings up all those different uh, dimensions. And, and I appreciate you giving me the chance to kind of unspool them because they're very, very fresh for me. Like literally this morning, I'm, I've never said these things out loud before. So thank you for the question. All I can do in this moment is to do whatever's aligned. And at this moment, what's aligned is to be curious, to feel the feelings that come up around this stuff, to feel the mixed mm. feelings and to be confused, to be lost. You know, I think, in fact, the walk I was doing this morning was with someone in Dubai, like I said, uh, someone who's Palestinian. And this person was obviously going through a tremendous amount of pain and heartbreak right now. I mean, of a kind that I cannot imagine. Because they're reliving what they've been carrying in their bones already. The memories from their childhood of the humiliation and the degradation and seeing their parents humiliated. And the loss and the, the rupture and the violation. They, they used the word rape of that land and of that people. And I don't think it's an overstatement. And I said to them, and it kind of surprised me coming out of my own mouth, I said, if, if we Jews have anything to offer the world in terms of like spiritual skills, it's the skill of being a wandering people, of wandering and wandering, of being in exile. Not that the Palestinians need to be taught anything about being in exile. But what I'm saying is, in terms of tapping into a Jewish skill for myself in this moment, mm -hmm. is to embrace the fact that I'm in the desert. And, you know, I haven't read too much of the Bible, but I know that the Jews in the desert were pretty impatient for those 40 years. But looking back on it, you know, if we see the one, the one, the wandering and the wandering is just a cruel punishment from God that takes them from the frying pan of slavery into the fire of the desert. Well, then it's just all senseless. But if there's a purpose to it, if there's a, if there's a a, a bigger um, meaning to it that we can find, even in retrospect, then we can engage with it differently. So I'm trying to engage with it while it's happening. Like, what will this have meant <laughs> that me and my era of Jews went through this? And I'm, a, you know, and then already, the minute I even say that, I mean, I'm mentally chiropractic myself because now it's not about me. And it doesn't depend on me having children necessarily. It's that I'm part of a story, a much larger story. And Jews wandered and wandered and wandered. And some Jews got tired of wandering. And so they decided to settle and colonize and take and say, fuck that. We're not going to be the lost ones anymore. You're going to mm -hmm. be the lost ones. 
you do that work for us now. And that's Zionism. And they explicitly said it. We're not playing this victim game anymore. We're going to take what's ours. Everyone else has their country. We're taking our country. It's understandable. It's also disastrous, as we've seen. And it's disastrous for Jews. And more and more Jews are waking up to that. So if that's not the answer, the false temptation of grabbing security at someone else's expense, well, then we have to keep wondering a bit. And maybe that's what I'm doing. And maybe actually, I mean, this you were scared of this interview? I should have been scared of it. This is momentous. I'm seeing all kinds of things talking to you. I'm the one doing the walking and talking. I literally am a wandering Jew. I make, I make money being a wandering Jew. I wander with people. That's pretty cool. I can, I can feel really good about my place in the bigger Jewish story if that's what I'm here to embody. And it puts the heartbreak of it in a much more secure, meaningful, um, trustworthy place. Thank you so much for, um, oh, look, just for the openness, you know, um, yeah, it's a real, it's a real privilege to hear you speak and, and, and hear you work through stuff. I can kind of see that happening. Um, so I know a lot of people listening like me, have felt like they've been on some strange, intense retreat for the past few months where we're watching all this horror unfold, but we're also being faced with our own privilege and our own ignorance. And well, okay, I'm only speaking from my perspective. I feel like I'm being faced with my privilege, my ignorance and trying to manage my own feelings of guilt and um, yeah, just that frustration I feel but also trying to channel yeah. all of those feelings of, of helplessness and despair and grief into one small thing that I might be able to do on a daily basis, which be click a button and share a Palestinian account or, you know, show solidarity in some way. And I know a lot of people are going through a lot of similar feelings right now. Um, and I've connected to people in a way over the past few months that I didn't know. I didn't know before October and I feel this deep connection with them now as a result. And it is, it's comforting and helpful. Um, it's also, I always feel uncomfortable even saying that um, because it's not about me, but it's that feeling of wanting to do something that matters, that helps, but also we still have to live our lives and we still have to get on and, you know, whether we have kids of our own or families of our own or jobs or whatever it is, yeah. it's managing all yeah. of those things. Um, I suppose maybe words of any sort of words that might help us navigate this time because there is, it feels like emotions are running high and um, yeah, just the the trying to to navigate it uh, in a in a in a way that is balancing and feeling that you're not losing um sight of what's important but also still functioning in your own real life well very good if that makes That's sense great and you well it makes t total sense and i think you expressed what millions of people are feeling which allows me then to speak to millions of people theoretically i don't know who's listening but in putting yourself into that question, you're 
opening the aperture for me to to say something hopefully that's very um hopefully of use to a lot of people so hopefully i want to say something crystallizing here i'm not going to say anything encouraging you might get courage from it but i'm not going to try to encourage you or make you feel better or any of that but i certainly also don't want to increase anyone's guilt because guilt is totally paralyzing unless it's healthy remorse about which you know exactly what to do in that moment oh i just hit you with my car let me not sit here in the driver's seat feeling guilty about it let me get out and call you an ambulance later for the guilt you know hmm. so number 1 there's a few premises embedded in the way you phrase things that again i'm this is not a criticism of you at all sheila this is you in fact speaking for the way a lot of people's minds are working right now and i'm going to suggest like i do with all my mental chiropractic clients it's the hmm. way our minds frame the problem that is the problem, not the problem that we think is the problem. So you said, I know it's not about me right now. Well, it's not only about you. Maybe it's not even primarily about you. But it's also not not about you. I mean, isn't it about the world? Hmm. And aren't you a part of that world? If, the, if what we write in the myth of normal has any validity, to, validity at all, it's that our biology is interpersonal, not just our psychology, but our very selves. You're a part of the world that both created Gaza and is being created by what is happening in Gaza. It lives where you are. If the solution is going to come from anywhere, it's probably not going to come exclusively from inside Gaza. It's going to come from people who are on the surface, uninvolved. Who is South Africa to be doing what they're doing in The Hague right now? What if they said, mm -hmm. oh, I know it's not about me. No, they're doing what they're doing yeah. because it is about them. Now, they have a history of resistant colonialism, but guess what? Who, you know, guess who else does? Guess who I'm talking to? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So That's why we feel it so deeply, I think. Of course it's why you feel it so deeply. So this it's not about me thing is in some mm, okay. ways turning the unwanted guest away at the door and saying, I don't know who you are, but if you actually invite them in, they take off their garb, you might find it's your great-grandmother. Mm. Now, I understand the impulse to not want to quote-unquote center yourself and all this stuff, but there's a lot of social justice jargon that only serves to shut people down, and I don't recommend it in this moment. Another one is privilege. Now, it's not untrue that you have privilege, and I have privilege. I have exceeding amounts of privilege. But that's just an objective material fact. There's no moral content to saying I have privilege. You know that? I have certain privileges that other people don't. There are mm. people in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, not far from here, that have privileges that I don't, but I'm closer to them than I am to the people in Gaza on the class scale. So we all have privileges. But the problem with the discourse, I think, around privilege is it's become a kind of original sin for socially conscientious people. And we walk around flagellating ourselves as if we're trying to expiate our privilege, which we can't, unless you want to give everything up and live in sackcloth, which I don't think you do. You, no. know, you couldn't, do a, couldn't do a podcast that way, wouldn't be doing anyone any good in that respect. 
And that would be all about you too. That would be making you feel more pure or more whatever, unless it was a true calling for you to completely give up all your material possessions. But if you're not going to do that, then you have the privilege you have. I still have, I have no fewer privileges than I had on October 7th. In some ways I have even more. Because now I have the privilege of a big platform. So what is a useful way of looking at the same phenomenon? Because you're pointing to something. And I think one possible way of reframing that, don't deny your privilege, but just take it as a fait accompli, a given. It's fate. It's what fate gave you. And then there's destiny, which is not written. And the thing we can do something about is not our privilege, but our blind spots. Now, privilege tends to confer upon us unasked for and usually unexamined blind spots. Because if I have the privilege, one of the things I have the privilege not to do is to look at uncomfortable things. Just to give an analogy from my own life, I've never experienced anything on the magnitude of what the people of Gaza experience in a single day of their lives. And I'm talking before October 7th, which is to live in the world's largest open-air ghetto could call it a concentration camp, could call it a prison camp. I, I'm starting to think ghetto might be the, the most just solidly objective way of referring to it. So that's a kind of incarceration I've never experienced. However, I did spend three and a half weeks in a Mexico City jail. And I got COVID in there. And then I was deported okay. from Mexico. You outstayed your welcome. So was I was in, what's that? Did you outstay your welcome? Sorry, I did overstay flip, my welcome. I have no idea. No, no, no. Oh, I, I literally, I oh, literally right. overstayed. Okay. Yeah, it was an immigration okay. detention facility. All right. And okay. so I overstayed my tourist visa, got some bad legal advice, was cocky, can't happen to me, wouldn't happen to me if it happens at all. And it did happen to me. And I was completely and totally in the wrong, objectively speaking. It wasn't, you know, my tourist visa had expired. I had stayed two months later. I had good reasons, good excuses, good alibis didn't matter. I wasn't picked up on false charges. I just happened to be on a bus where the immigration authorities happened to be boarding looking for passports. And that night I arrived at what I thought was going to be just an office to sort out some bureaucratic red tape. And in fact, it was a jail. And it was me and 600 other guys. Now, every single one of those guys was not Canadian and was not Mm. white, and was probably not Jewish. And I'm willing to bet none of them were remotely as financially secure as I am. Because all of them were coming from the global south, and they were all trying to get to the global north. They were trying to get to the states. Almost all of them. And they were from Venezuela, and Honduras, and El Salvador, and Nicaragua, and Cuba, and Haiti. And the the Haitians had it worst of all because of the added color dynamic. Mm -hmm. And they were escaping from some of the most brutal conditions. Now, of course, the added irony is that most of these people were escaping from countries whose economies and societies had been ruined by the very country they were trying to get to. But I didn't get very far trying to explain that to them in my broken Spanish. You know, I wasn't going to organize an anti-imperialist, anti-Yankee prison revolution from within this, uh, this jail. Um, so I just, I just let that one go and focused on reading Moby Dick and getting better from COVID. But anyway, the point is 
here I am in this situation where I can do nothing. All of a sudden, my privilege doesn't mean shit. And even that isn't true because the fact that I was connected and had people on the outside who I was able to call every few days meant that there was an embassy working on my behalf, not getting very far, but still working on my behalf and putting some kind of pressure. And I was able to get, they were able to get me an infectious diseases specialist to come in and treat my COVID with steroids, which helped instantly. And I knew I had support and knowing you have support is very health. It's, it gives you health, you know, it gives you strength. If you think you're being, you've been abandoned by the world, it's actually has physical consequences, which, you know, that's what it is to be a Palestinian most of the time. But the point is I arrived in there and I was the only gringo. My nickname was Canada. That's what they called me. That's how much of an outlier I was. And they thought I was a real curiosity, you know? And as I watched my own ego try to cope with this situation, it was very funny. The first few days I was really trying to explain to them who I was. And I wouldn't think that I would respond this way because I'm a socially enlightened guy, right? I would want to, I'm happy to be down there with the people, you know, like I, I, I don't deserve any better. Well, that's not how I acted. How I acted was talking to the bureaucrats in the back office being like, Conoces Penguin Random House? Yo soy un escritor, un libro con mi padre, muy importante. You know, like trying to explain that I'm writing a book about trauma and illness that's going to be translated into 30 languages. It's going to help a lot of people, including your people. So you might want to let me go. I mean, this is literally how my ego was like trying to bargain yeah. with reality because it's used to being able to. Well, that's a function of privilege, but it's also a function of trauma. I was acting the way I used to act as a little kid to get my way. And when mm -hmm. that didn't work, I sulked and I got really petulant and I started, you know, just getting really uselessly rebellious without pushing the buttons too much. And that didn't work. And then I just got really sad and depressed. So basically, I walked through my early childhood, my teenage years, and my 20s wow. in the span of a week. Mm. And then I got COVID and all of a sudden the door clanged shut because they were going to keep me there for another 15 days, no matter what I or anyone else said. And that's when I had to deal with my utter helplessness. And that's when I had the spiritual nourishment, you know, I got the spiritual nutrition of the experience starting then. And what I got about privilege and blind spots in that was, was worth the price of admission. And it was worth anything really. And I got that my entire life up until that point had been constructed as a series of invisible guardrails that are there to keep me from falling into the pit of that reality, which affects most of humanity, which is having no control, having no freedom, being at the subject of larger forces, having to do with imperialism and global politics and all that. My life is like a catwalk that just blithely, you know, uh, kind of, I get to walk above and around all of the despair and misery and deprivation, and I don't ever have to see it. And I get to benefit from it and all the privileges and all the gadgets and all the treats. And I don't even have to know it's there. I might get a little glimpse, but then I keep walking. Well, what happened? For whatever reason, whether I deserved it or not, whether it was divine plan or not, I choose to believe it has meaning, but 
could have been an accident, but one of those guardrails gave way. I leaned on it a little too hard, and I fell through, and I fell through into the reality that most people live in. And I just got to see that I had a huge blind spot. Now, the whole time, I knew I was going to be released. If COVID didn't get me, I was going to be released. And I, didn't, I wasn't that afraid of COVID, even though it was the Delta variant. I thought I was going to make it through. So I knew I was going to go back to my privilege. So then the question is, am I going to take this gift of having been shown one of my blind spots and having had it exposed and having had it filled in? Am I going to let this enrich me? Now, it wouldn't have been helpful, and it isn't helpful if I'd been like, okay, how am I going to work to dismantle colonialism and imperialism every day and give up my privilege and feel guilty and all that? No, that's not a way, any way to live mm, for okay. me that is authentic. Yeah, yeah. What is authentic is, how can I continue to live a life where I dismantle my own blind spots constantly and on purpose, and where I help other people dismantle theirs constantly and on purpose? Now, that's fun. That's actually a life that calls to me. It's not a life that oppresses me with guilt and obligation and a kind of unpayable debt, which it is to be a white person in this world, to be living mm -hmm. in the West as anyone in a, in, a, in a wealthy society. We can never pay that debt back. And if we try yeah. to hold ourselves to, I have to pay it back, what we're doing is we're hamstringing our ability to become ourselves where we are and to bring our gifts to, the, to this hurting world. So to your question now, now that my lengthy little narrative discursus has found its way back to the starting point, you said, what's something we can do every day? Well, there's a lot of things you could do every day. You could create rituals around anything that matters to you. And clicking and sharing things is certainly one thing you can do. I don't recommend making social media the full extent of your activism. I just don't. It's just not that. It's a monocrop, you know? It's, it's high glycemic carbs. It doesn't nourish you. It doesn't keep you full. You need more and more and more, and you'll always feel like it's not enough. It also doesn't help you connect to your own individuality, your own calling, because you're here for a purpose. We're all here in this time, but we're all here for, to bring something slightly different. So one practice you could do is... I'm going to uncover one blind spot of mine every single day. Let's play that game. And when I do, I'm going to figure out one thing I can do about that blind spot. Now, would that be a life worth living? I think so. Whatever mm. enlivens you, whatever gives you the juice to keep doing it, do that. Don't choose the thing that's going to make you feel shitty about yourself so that you opt out just to self-soothe. So I don't recommend yes. undischargeable guilt as a motivator for anything. Feel the guilt, absolutely, and get with other people and process it, because it's important. It's, it's not that it has nothing to offer. But as far as your privilege, use your privilege to uncover your blind spots. That's what I would say. That is so helpful. The Palestinians do not need you to be walking around in a stupor of, of guilt. They really don't. We're chanting no. free, free Palestine. We can't free, free anything if we can't free, free ourselves. We have no freedom to offer anyone if we are not loving the freedom we have. And freedom is enlivening, you know? 
So I'm not saying push it away, shut the door. No, that's that's more of it. That's worse. But move through it. Move through it and find out the truth that what Jesus said, you know, you shall see the truth and the truth shall set you free. But first it'll piss you off. I think that's the other part mm. of the scripture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's been so helpful, Daniel. Thank you so or rather, much. First it'll, first, it'll break your heart. Yeah, yeah. 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 You have to be willing, you have to, be willing to be heartbroken. Stephen Jenkinson says mm. heartbreak is a skill, and it's a mandatory one in times like this. And I think that's important. We can't skip over that part. No. Yeah, because it's, it's that deep grief that, that so many feel for people they've, they've never met. Um, yeah. and it's, yeah, you it's have given up, us so much. Yeah, it is. It is. Culture is made from grief. Culture is made from heartbreak. Culture is made from longing. So make culture together, you know, make art, make ceremony, do the things human beings have always done with these inescapable, fundamental, ineluctable human experiences. I could just keep preaching forever. So you're going to have to just like literally say, Daniel, we need to wrap this podcast up because you've got me going now. And I sense you're wanting to bring it to a close. So I'm going to. I don't want to, no, I don't want to wrap it up, but I also, I'm fully aware of, of, of time is precious and you've given so much of your time already. So um, what I do want to mention though, is you coming to Ireland in March, which is really only mm-hmm. around the corner. You're going to be in, in, in Cork, in Cork city, in the Metropole yeah, Hotel. Awesome. Yeah, what day? The 24th? On the 24th. Right? Yes, Sunday yeah. the 24th. Yeah. I and some friends of mine already have our tickets. Um, I will add in a link into the show notes if there are any left that people want to purchase. But it's a full day of you delivering uh, a, a workshop on the myth of normal. It's a combo package. I'm really excited about this. Ooh. This is going to be... Okay. Yeah, so the morning is about the myth of normal. And I'll do my best to, you know, represent Mate Corp and talk about our book and um, just, you know, answer questions about it. And I'll have to reread the book to remember what the hell's in it. But yeah, talking about all the themes of it, trauma, illness, and healing in a toxic culture. I should have something to say about that. And then we have lunch. And then in the afternoon is a complete world premiere jumping off the high diving board for me experiment that I'm very excited about, which will be my first ever public talk and demonstration of mental chiropractic. So sharing the principles of it, sharing some of the mechanics of it, maybe doing some actual demonstration. In fact, certainly doing some demonstration with live people. So I'm hoping we'll have handheld mics that, or, or, you know, wireless mics so I can take a walk with the person around the circumference of the room while everyone, you know, turns around and watches. Um, I'm really excited about it because my bio lists me as the world's only mental chiropractor, and that was always meant to be a temporary designation. It's actually something that I'd like to train people in. It's something I'd like to develop because it is a thing. It's been like revealing itself to me the more I do it. And I want to write a book about it. That'll probably be my first solo book um, at some point in the not too distant future. So getting out there into the world and road testing it and seeing if I can speak about it in a way that people can get something from uh, I couldn't be more excited for this trip to Ireland. I mean, I'm always excited to come to Ireland. I've been there 
once, twice now, maybe only once. I love it. Um, I've mainly only been to the North Donegal and things like that, but so I've never been to Cork. Um, hmm. But it'll be quite an experience for me. And um, if I'm having an experience, then anyone else in the room will, will have one too, because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll definitely be in it with you. So it's, um, I'm tremendously honored and, and excited by this opportunity. And it, it feels like a, a corner turn for me into a different phase of my work where I can actually bring my own method to spaces and to people and, uh, and see what it has to offer in a group setting. I have no idea what it's going to be like, but I'm, I'm excited. So Daniel, thank you so, so much. I look forward to meeting you in person in March. And um, thank you so much for saying yes to this. It was, it was a real thrill when you did. Uh, I was, you know, high-fiving myself <laughs> for actually reaching out to you because <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure whether you'd even respond. So thank you so much. I know that listeners will be very grateful that you did as well. I'm looking forward to sharing it with people. I know it's, it's helped me. It will help me on the re-listen as well. I know it will for those listening. So thank you so much from my heart. From mine, thank you and you're welcome. And let this be a lesson to you that you should definitely trust your impulses on, you know, connections you want to make in life because people want to connect with you as much as you want to connect with them. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you'd spread the word. You can let your friends or family know about it. You can share it on your social media accounts and you can support what I do in all the other usual ways by clicking follow, giving a rating or leaving a little comment. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Ready To Be Real. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.